I've wrestled with this topic, the topic of hell that we're going to speak upon now. You know, it was such a clear understanding a few months ago when I was praying about what to preach in the second half of the year was to preach through uh, Jeremiah. And as we come to this bit here, this passage in Jeremiah really do bump into that difficult topic of hell. And how do you make sense of that quite a grim topic that the Bible takes so seriously? So, I mean, when was the last time you heard a preacher preach on hell? And so why do preachers avoid that when the Bible takes it so seriously? So C.S. Lewis, on writing on the topic of hell, says this, There is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this, if it lay in my power. His book, The Great Divorce, I think is one of the best books on hell that you could read. Uh, He uses analogy to explore heaven and hell. Anyway, I tend to agree, and many people tend to agree with C.S. Lewis on that. For both Christian and non-Christian, nobody likes the idea of hell. And, uh, of course, with Israel Folau's very public comments, then a lot of people are talking about it, aren't they? And no matter what your workplace or even in some family situations, some sporting conversations turn to Israel Folau and his rather uh, controversial topics. And for those of us who believe in hell, we don't enjoy the idea of eternal suffering. And we find it heartbreaking to know that there are people that we love, we care for, who, if they don't look to Christ, will be separated from the love of God forever. However, the Bible clearly teaches about this reality, and we cannot understand God or our place in the world unless we grapple with what hell is and what it means for us. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to explore what the Jeremiah passage tells us about hell and then how Jesus understood and taught about hell. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to this really challenging subject, this emotional subject, we pray that your Holy Spirit will be amongst us and help us to think clearly, uh, break down any of those barriers that we may have, and may we understand why we need a saviour. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's a question. Who in the Bible spoke most about hell? You know, if you wanted to go word for word, what character in the Bible speaks about it the most? It's not Jeremiah. It's Jesus. Jesus spoke most about hell. And that surprises people. Most people think Jesus Christ, meek and mild, full of the love of God for all people. Wasn't he all about forgiveness and compassion? Well, he was. But he's also the person who spoke most about hell. And when Jesus in the Gospels, we read of him speaking of hell, what did he want us to imagine? What did he want to invoke within the listeners, both the original listeners and us, as he talked about the phrases he used? He used hell directly, but he also used phrases like the fiery furnace, the weeping and gnashing of teeth, eternal judgment. Well, he was relying on the original listener's understanding of what we bump into here in Jeremiah. So by spending some time unpacking this passage that Judy read out, we will have a better understanding of what Jesus' original listeners thought about when Jesus used the word hell and what we are to as well. So you'll have this in your handout, uh, Jeremiah chapter 7 from verse 30. 
Now, we remember that Jeremiah lived some 600 years before Jesus when the hearts of God's people were very calloused. So hard were his people's hearts that they couldn't see how far they had fallen from God and his ways. So here in Jeremiah 7, God is using shock tactics to try and shake those people, God's people, into understanding how evil their ways had become. And in this particular passage, there are two appalling sins that God wants to highlight in his people. So, Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 30. The people of Judah have done evil in my eyes, declares the Lord. They have set up their detestable idols in the house that bears my name and have defiled it. As with the other prophecies that we've looked at in our series in Jeremiah, God's chief concern was against the breaking of the first two commandments. The first two commandments, you shall have no other gods, you shall not craft for yourself or make idols. And this is exactly what God's people were doing. Decades before, they had done this in secret. In the privacy of their homes, they had set up an idol, or out in the countryside, in the high places, away from people. But they had become so bold that they had even placed idols in the temple of the holy God. And God is using Jeremiah to say, no, you cannot worship me and other idols. And whenever we put something else in our life as the center apart from Christ, whatever that may be, then it leads us to break the others of the Ten Commandments. And this had led God's people to break the Sixth Commandment in the most despicable and evil way. So they had broken the first two commandments by setting up idols in the temple, and they had also broken the Sixth Commandment, Thou shalt not kill, verse 31. They have built high places of Topeth in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to burn their sons and daughters in fire, something I did not command, nor did it enter my mind. I mean, isn't this shocking? I mean, did you draw breath when Judy read that? Did you say, wow, I didn't even know that was in the Bible, that God's people were sacrificing their children? The sixth commandment was being shattered in a way that never had entered God's mind. When he had plucked God's people, his people, out of slavery from Egypt and rescued them and taken them to the promised land and given them all those good and wonderful laws, it never even entered his mind that centuries later his people would be sacrificing children to idols. The valley of Hermon is a valley that drops down from the edge of Jerusalem so that the city of Jerusalem where the temple was in the valley there they were sacrificing their children to idols. Now, when Ben and I were in India just a few months ago and we were visiting isolated tribal villages up in the hills, we came to a village where there was quite a steep drop-off into that valley that you can see there. And while we were there standing there, some of the people said, uh, pointed out a village on the distance and said, uh, in that village there, there was a priestess that was sacrificing humans right up through the 70s. And then they said, the surrounding villagers were very scared and kept their distance. Thought, well, yeah, really, tell me about it. <laughs> you would, wouldn't you? And so I said, well, what happened? What changed? And they said, brave Christian missionaries ventured into that village, and after a time, that whole village was converted to Jesus Christ. Isn't that an amazing story? The thing is, I went away thinking 1970s, I was a teenager. That's in my lifetime. People were sacrificing 
to idols. And this was what was happening in Jeremiah's day. And it was evil, and it had never entered God's mind. And so through Jeremiah, he issues a cease and desist. Immediately stop what you were doing. Repent. Turn to me, or there will be consequences. And the consequences will be grim. And we read about that in verse 32. So be aware the days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer call it Topeth or the Valley of Ben-Himon, but the Valley of Slaughter, for they will bury the dead of Topeth until there is no more room. Then the carcasses of this people will become food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and there will be no one to frighten them away. And then for the rest of that chapter and into the next chapter, there are even more consequences for those that continue to sacrifice children to idols. And all this sadly came true. The people did not repent. And in Jeremiah's lifetime, God sent the nation of Babylon that besieged Jerusalem and eventually broke through and there was great loss of life in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, was filled with the dead that they didn't even have time to bury. So this is the background as we now fast forward to Jesus' day. Six centuries later, the valley of Ben-Hinnom had not shaken off its reputation for evil and God's judgment. In Jesus' day, that valley had become Jerusalem's rubbish tip. And from this valley, there was a continuous smoldering of burning rubbish, there was a stench that would make you gag. And even in Jesus' day, there were bodies being dumped in that rubbish tip. And so if you had a donkey in the city and it died, what do you do with it? You couldn't bury it. You got some mates together and you dragged it into the valley of Ben-Hanom and you left it there. Even some folk uh, who were crucified, their bodies were just dumped into the rubbish tip of Jerusalem. And over that time, there'd also been a name change. The Hebrew, Ben-Hinnom, was replaced with the common dialect of the day, Aramaic, and everybody referred to it as Gehenna. Gehenna. And you know, this is the word that Jesus uses when he says hell in the Bible. And so, in the Sermon on the Mount, in the context of adultery, Jesus says this in Matthew 5, verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into Gehenna. So in the original language, Jesus uses the word Gehenna, the rubbish tip of Jerusalem, and our English translates it as hell. Now, we haven't time to unpack what Jesus is saying here about connecting adultery and gouging out your eye, but I think we get the point. (laughs) Jesus is saying this is pretty serious, and so is being thrown into Gehenna. And so if you were the original listener and you heard Jesus say the word hell or Gehenna, and you thought, I wonder what Jesus is talking about, all you would have to do would be to walk to the edge of Jerusalem, to the edge of the city, and look down into that valley, and you would see the smoldering haze You would smell the stench if the wind was in the right direction and you would see people carting rubbish into that valley. So with this in mind, let's look back at a verse that we looked at last week. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is Gehenna, is, is hell. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't that wonderful news? 
For the wages of sin, we all sin, is hell. And John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, shall not go to Gehenna, shall not go to hell, but have eternal life. I mean, I could go on. The verse I use for our call to worship today. For God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. He's rescued us from Gehenna and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. Isn't that wonderful news? The rescue, the rescue from Gehenna, eternal separation from God to heaven itself. When we understand what Gehenna is and it's our default, then the good news is very much good news, isn't it? It's wonderful news when we realise what we're being rescued from. But there are so many objections to what I have just been talking about. Both within the church and without the church, people have really struggled with the idea that a God who loves us can send anyone to hell. I mean, there'll be people here that's struggling with that. And there's certainly people outside the church who are mightily offended by the very thought of that. Look at the response that Israel Folau has got with his comments. And so, what are some of the workarounds that good-meaning people, people that are meaning to do well, have tried to wiggle out of this? And so you will hear these sort of workarounds from what I've just said. Hell is just a metaphor. It's not real. It's a state of mind. It's something that Jesus used to forcefully contrast the kingdom of heaven. But it's not real. The second thing we hear is that, well, when people die, they just cease to exist. So if you're a Christian, you go to heaven. But if there's someone who doesn't believe in Jesus, they just cease to exist. Another workaround you may have heard is that eventually everybody gets into heaven. That when a person dies, and if they don't believe in Jesus, they will be given a second choice after death and a third choice, and a fourth choice, and a fifth choice, to eventually they'll come to their senses and come to heaven. Unfortunately, none of those workarounds line up with God's word. But you may have heard of those. You may have heard of all of them. I have. So to help us understand how a loving God can send people to hell, let's look at the flip side of the objection. So we're saying, how can a loving God send anyone to hell? The other side of that question is, why can't God allow everyone into heaven? Because that's, that's the logical implication from that first objection. If God sends no one to hell, that means everybody must get into heaven. So let's explore that side. Heaven. What is heaven? Heaven is all about the presence of God. You see, Adam and Eve in the garden had open access to the presence of God until they rebelled and they were shut out from the presence of God and they were left on their own. And with Moses and the escape from Egypt, the tabernacle, the tent place of worship, was all about restoring the presence of God. And that's why there's all these laws about cleanliness because God was living with them, the people of Israel, and he wanted the people around them to be clean, ceremonial clean. And of course, through history, we track through the tabernacle made out of tent to the tabernacle, the temple made out of stone. And in the middle of that temple was the Holy of Holies. There was this huge curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. And in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. 
And there were two gold angels that was on the end with their wings over the center of the Ark of the Covenant. And between the two wings was the Shekinah glory of God. The presence of God was in the Holy of Holies until Jesus came. And at Calvary, he cried, it is finished. And he breathed his last. And the curtain was torn in two from the top to the bottom. God's presence was escaping from the Holy of Holies. And that's what Pentecost was all about. It was about the presence of God coming to live in his people. The Holy Spirit is a foretaste of heaven. It is the a very real presence of God in our lives. And it's a deposit. The Bible tells us the Holy Spirit is a, a deposit of what's to come. Now, many of us have mortgages, and what you do is you pay a deposit, and then you live in the house, even though you don't own it yet. And then you pay off the house until the house is fully yours. It's a little bit like that with the Holy Spirit. He comes to live in us as a deposit, as a sign of what will happen What will happen when the new heaven and the new earth come down? And in Revelation, there's this wonderful image of heaven coming down to the earth. And those who look to Jesus will have recreated bodies that will be able to live in the presence of God. There'll be no more tears nor suffering, only everlasting joy and our fullness will be complete. There won't even be a sun, we are told in Revelation, for God himself will be the light and that every nook and cranny in heaven will be filled with heavenly delight, the presence of God. And this glimpse of heaven thrills the heart of every believer. But let's imagine your neighbor. He's a good neighbor. He's been living next door for years. He's quiet. He keeps his section clean. You have pleasant conversations over the fence. When you're on holiday, you put each other's wheelie bins out. Now, a couple of times you've tried to talk to your neighbour about God and church and he quickly dismisses it. And then one day, your neighbour dies and you attend his funeral. Now, unfortunately, your neighbour has spent his whole life avoiding God. Ever since it first entered his mind that there might be one, your neighbour has turned aside. In fact, he's structured his whole life to avoid God. And in his own mind, he goes like this, I don't need a crutch. I have life under control. Anyway, if there's a God, I will be okay. I'm a good person. If there's a God, I try my best. I love my family. I'm honest at work. I pay most of my taxes. I'm not an axe murderer. I'll be fine. And you attend his funeral. And meanwhile, he is at the gates of heaven and he asks to get in. However, your neighbour has spent his whole life avoiding God and he still wants to go in heaven but avoid God. And politely and firmly, he's told you can't avoid God in heaven. He's everywhere. He's every taste and every smell, and and light itself is God. And your neighbour is disgusted. And he asks, isn't there somewhere in the universe that has nothing of God? And the gates of heaven, he's told, well, yes, there is one small corner of the universe where God has completely withdrawn himself, and you can go there. And the neighbour says, sign me up. And you know that place that he signed up for is? It has a name. And that place is called Gehenna. You see, hell is the absence of the presence of God. 
if God was to withdraw himself even from the smallest atom size part of the universe, then by very definition, it becomes hell. And sadly, some people would rather be lord of their lives in hell than bow their knees to Jesus in heaven. Some theologians say that hell is locked from the inside to stop God's love getting in and that the doors of hell are not locked from the outside to stop them getting out. I mean, what are we asking when we say a good God could never send anyone to hell? Would you be happy to meet Hitler in heaven? You'd imagine Hitler, who was evil all his life, and then when he died, realised there was no punishment. There was no punishment for his evil, and he was having such a good time on earth being evil, he would stay in heaven and be ten times, a hundred times, a thousand times more evil, and he had all eternity to develop that. I mean, that's what you're asking, isn't it? If you say God cannot send anyone to hell. And maybe you think, well, okay, maybe, just maybe, there's a place for people like Hitler to go to hell. But certainly not my neighbour. My neighbour was a nice guy. He surely doesn't go to go, he doesn't deserve to go to hell. And notice what we are doing when we do that. We are telling God what to do. We are telling him his business and we become the person who sets the criteria for who gets into hell and who doesn't. And I think most of us can see how wrong that is. Who are we to tell God to go about his business? How arrogant for us to say, hell is okay for Hitler, but not for my neighbour. That is very much God's call. Now, much more could be said about this very big topic. It's a sobering topic, isn't it? As I said, it sucks the joy out of the room, (laughs) which is one of the reasons why afterwards we're going to be going worshipping God and moving into communion. But let's sum up what I've talked about today. First of all, we saw that Jesus speaks more about hell than anyone else in the Bible. This is a clear signal to him of its importance and how dare we minimise it or ignore it when it was important to Jesus. Now, we've got to keep this in perspective. In the Sermon of the Mount, which is three chapters, Jesus uses the word heaven 17 times and he uses the word hell three times. So that's a six to one ratio. So I'm not saying that Jesus spoke about hell all the time, not at all. He spoke about the goodness of God and how to get to God, but he did at time to time, very seriously warn about the consequences. A six to one ratio is probably a good ratio for us. One day pondering the depths of hell a week could be good for our mortal soul. I'm not sure if it'll make us good to live with. But anyway, Jesus spoke regularly about hell. Secondly, when Jesus did, he was referring to a physical place. He was referring to Gehenna, which was was shrouded in evil with all that child sacrifice in the past and was the current rubbish tip. And in many respects, when you use the other languages that Jesus used, and that's a good image for us to have in our mind when we talk or think about hell. Thirdly, tragically, our default is Gehenna. The Bible makes it very clear that everybody goes to hell unless they look to Jesus. Now, 
if I had time, we could explore that a lot more because the scripture is quite nuanced on that and there's a lot more. But basically, hell is our default and this is very, very bad news. It's bad news for everyone. And this is why we need a saviour. This is the fourth thing. We need a saviour to rescue us from hell. Not just any saviour, but the son of God who came as a baby born on that first Christmas. And do you know, uh, in that, remember in the, in the vision of an angel, uh, Joseph was to say, you must name that baby Jesus. And the word Jesus is a, is a Greek variant of the Hebrew word Joshua, and Joshua means God saves. Jesus literally means God saves. And that is why he came, to save us from the very gates of hell, to save us from Gehenna, to rescue us from the dominion of darkness and bring him into his kingdom, the kingdom of the Son of God. And this is what we celebrate at Christmas, that Jesus came to save us from the gates of hell, from Gehenna, to rescue us and to set us free. You see, without Gehenna, the good news is not good news. It's actually bland news. If there's no hell and you listen to the gospel, you think, well, it's okay, but I've got other options. So it becomes ho-hum news, becomes bland. People outside the church can turn their back on it, and it's no big deal. But when the reality of hell strikes then the gospel is great news. It's wonderful news. It's like someone drowning, gasping their last breath, and a lifeline's thrown to them, and they grab it. It's that sort of good news that we're talking about. And this is the God that we worship, that he sent his only son to rescue us from Gehenna and to bring us into eternal life. Let's pray.